Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's reading comes from Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteousness, sorry, to the righteous of eternal life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thank you, sir. Good morning. Well, a number of new faces in the room for me, uh, so welcome. My name is John. I am the pastor, and I'm glad that you're here today. We're going to open up the scriptures. Uh, this passage in Matthew, kind of like the rest of the chapter in Matthew, is, uh, is dark. It's all over there. We've got more weeping and gnashing of teeth. We've got uh, some intensity to this passage. And our, our, our assigned scriptures in recent weeks have been on these kind of apocalyptic judgment themes. And it's in anticipation of the season of Advent, which is uniquely focused on the return of Christ to renew and restore all things, but also means Jesus coming to judge the earth, to, to demonstrate what's, what's good and righteous, what will last forever, and what's going to get burnt up, what won't be permitted in the age to come. But this text that we've just read is, uh, is actually the final teaching of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. And unlike some of the other previous passages, Jesus is not speaking in parables here. He's actually using apocalyptic language to describe judgment, what it's actually going to be like. If you'll look at the first couple verses of of, uh, our passage here. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. So this is not parable language, this is descriptive language. He says, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
Which, for the, the nine of you who know the reference, this is what that one cake song was about. <laughs> Sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell. Anybody in this room know that song? Okay, as with all of my jokes, it, it, it's a niche group of people who get it. <laughs> so this is one of the few places in Scripture that gives us a little bit of an imaginative glimpse of what it will be like when Jesus comes to judge the earth, of what it will be like what the Apostle Creed says, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Uh, many of you probably know this passage focusing on the least of these. You, you perhaps have heard it when you were going to go on an international mission trip and you were going to serve among people who were impoverished and this was like, like a pat on the back that you're going to serve Jesus by serving the least of these. And I've always read and understood this passage to be kind of a generic call to acts of mercy, of kindness to others. Whatever you do to the least of these, you've done to me. And naturally, obeying the, the commands of Jesus and obeying the law, like the fulfillment of that is to be people who naturally effervesce with works of justice and mercy, who extend kindness to others in the name of Jesus. Uh, Richard Stearns uh, wrote The Hole in Our Gospel. He's the former president of World Vision. And Rich said, surely this passage from Matthew 25 is another, another one of those passages that would be easy to cut from our Bibles. We would much rather believe that the only things needed for our salvation are saying the right words and believing the right things, not living lives that are characterized by Christ's concern for the poor. Why is this passage so sobering for us to read in the 21st century? Might it be that it hits us so very close to home? Rich says, let me take some liberties and paraphrase these verses for today's reader. For I was hungry while you had all you needed. I was thirsty, but you drank bottled water. I was a stranger, and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more clothes. I was sick, and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison, and you said I was getting what I deserved. Now, you can't read the Old Testament or the New Testament without coming across very clearly with God's heart for the poor. God's, God calls us to care for the widow, the stranger, the foreigner among us. It's, it's in the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament. We're meant to care for the destitute. If you love God, you're going to love your neighbor, and loving your neighbor is going to be expressed practically by clothing the naked and feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, providing shelter for the one who is without a home caring for people when they find themselves in positions of vulnerability. What's really interesting, and this, this was a discovery for me in studying this passage this week, is that there's actually more going on in this text than just a generic call to works of mercy. In exploring the more that's going on here will help clarify a confusing aspect of the text, which is the notion that it's acts of mercy that win us a spot with Jesus in the age to come. And the interpretive key for us in, in unlocking the more that's going on in this passage has to do with the second half of that phrase, the least of these, which we abbreviate. If you go to verse 40, Jesus says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
In verse 45, Jesus abbreviates it to the least of these, but that's hearkening back to what he's already said. It's not merely the least of these, but the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. So really important to understanding this text then is identifying who are the brothers and the sisters of Jesus. If the least of those, if we show kindness to them, we're showing kindness to Jesus. Who are the brothers and sisters of Jesus? Why do they find themselves in positions of vulnerability? And then if we read it in this, in this kind of unlocked way, what is Jesus trying to say to us? Um, I did what I normally do on Sundays uh, this morning. I wake up freakishly early. Don't think me overly spiritual or something, but on Sundays I wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning. It's usually because I don't sleep on Sundays. I'm just waiting for the next day to start. And whether my sermon is like 90% done or like sometimes 40% done going into a Sunday morning, uh, I'm using that time between 4, 4 o'clock and 6.30 in the morning to kind of fine-tune it, bring it to a place of hopefully somewhat readiness to share it with all of you. And I was realizing this morning as I was finishing up the sermon that this sermon lacks some of the basic ingredients that I really like having in a sermon. I don't have a ton of quotes from other people that kind of give structure and body to a sermon. I don't have a ton of personal stories or, or, or stories that are just extraneous and out there, which are helpful to have. Because when you're listening to a sermon, you know, we all have like a seven-minute attention span, and so I shift gears and tell a story, you're like, okay, I could keep listening again. This is going to be one of those sermons where it's difficult to do that, because <laughs> I don't have any of those stories. What I do have instead is a study of seven chapters of the Bible to help make sense of this passage today. So it's going to be kind of like if you've ever read one of the books of N.T. Wright or maybe some of your favorite books that like you have to endure and endure and endure in listening and if you get to the end, there's going to be a payoff for those who have listened. That's what this sermon is going to be like. So to understand what's going on in Matthew 25 here, we need to zoom out a little bit and see what is going on in the teaching ministry of Jesus and the itinerant ministry of Jesus right now. As we go back to chapter 18, we see that some, some themes are emerging from the ministry of Jesus. And, and the themes that emerge have to do what constitutes greatness in Jesus' kingdom. And what constitutes greatness in His kingdom is, is pitted up against a, a false sense of greatness from a worldly perspective. In Matthew 18, when Jesus was asked who was the greatest in the kingdom of God, He answered, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Who are the greatest in the kingdom of God? He says, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, this language, if you're paying attention, sounds like the language that Jake read for us a minute ago. Whoever welcomes one like this actually welcomes Jesus. And then he goes on to say, if anyone causes one of these little ones, and then we realize he's shifting the definition of who he's talking about. Now, no longer just children, but those who believe in me. He's describing believer, believers from a worldly perspective using diminutive language. They're, the disciples are like little ones in the world. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. People don't usually pick that passage for me to do at their weddings for some reason. I'm not sure why. 
So Jesus suggests that his followers are like the little ones of the world. In the same way that from a worldly perspective, we see children, we think they're sweet, but we don't think of them as being like heavyweights in contributing to the substantive matters of the world. So the world, according to Jesus, will think of his followers. We are the little ones. His point is that Jesus is going to hold the world accountable for how it treats his little ones, for how it treats his disciples. If you want to turn the page to Matthew 19 in your Bible, we see this famous encounter between Jesus and the person who's called the rich young ruler, someone who is, from a worldly point of view, great. They've achieved status. They have clout. They have capital to spend. But when Jesus says to this one young guy, the thing that you lack is you need to sell all that you own and give it to the poor and then come and follow me, this young man walks away sad because he gave his loyalty to his possessions and not to Jesus who was inviting him to follow. And then this is contrasted with the disciples who have walked away from everything, from their careers, from their livelihood, from their families, in order to follow Jesus. Peter mentions this to Jesus and says, look, we've left everything to follow you, so what then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life or life in the age to come. But many who are first in the present age will be last in the age to come, and many who are last will be first." The point of Jesus here is that those who walk away from worldly greatness to follow him will be justified in the age to come. We turn to Matthew chapter 20, and Jesus is asked by uh, James and John's mom, hey, when you come into your glory, can my boys sit at your right hand and your left hand? Can they be your right and left hand men in the age to come? And Jesus sees what's going on and how they're bickering amongst themselves about who's the best. And Jesus calls his little flock together. And he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They're thinking of the Roman Empire who wields their authority with the threat of violence, with physical intimidation, by force. And Jesus says, you know how the Romans rule, how they exercise authority over the people they've subjugated. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says the the greatness of his followers will be in in the ways in which they are unlike the great of Rome who dominate. And then we immediately have this story as Jesus begins making his way toward Jerusalem where he's going to have his big triumphal entry, where he passes through Jericho. Jericho is geographically a really low spot as he makes his way up 
to go to Jerusalem. And passing through Jericho, Jesus is walking through town and he hears this blind beggar calling out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What's fascinating is that this blind beggar from Jericho, just on the outskirts of Israel, recognizes who Jesus is. This is Israel's Messiah, something that the the religious elite of Jerusalem will not be able to appreciate. He says, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, in His kindness, heals the man. And the point of these together is that Jesus is full of mercy to the humble, And the people who follow him, who have been acculturated into believing a certain story about what constitutes greatness, must unlearn this in order to clothe themselves in humility. And we get to Matthew 21 through 24. And Jesus finally enters Jerusalem. He comes down from the Mount of Olives, and the crowds hail him as king. They lay out their cloaks before him. They wave their palm branches while the religious leaders scoff at this great scene. Jesus enters into the temple here in Matthew's gospel, and he cleanses the temple. He kicks over tables. He stampedes cattle out of there. He sees that the moneylenders are profiteering over those who are coming to worship. And as he's coming as Israel's judge, he perceives that they have failed the test. He's come to inspect their their faithfulness to God, and he's found them wanting. And having cleansed the temple, Jesus begins to tell parables begins to tell stories, and he rebukes them for their worldly greatness, but their destitution before God. And he indicates to the people of Israel that what was happening in his his incarnation and this official visitation was a kind of prophetic indictment against the people, that they failed the test. And Jesus said to them, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And it will be given to a people who will produce its fruit. Within the lifetime of the disciples, the the temple of Jerusalem will be destroyed. The city of Jerusalem will be destroyed, never to be rebuilt. And then we come to this chapter of Matthew 25, where Jesus indicates that the judgment that he's just proclaimed against Jerusalem will not be the final judgment, but there is one great day of the Lord that is to come, when all of the nations will gather before him and he'll separate the people. There'll be a final judgment, and he tells a series of parables at the end of Matthew 24 and the beginning of Matthew 25, indicating to his people, you be ready. Israel and the religious leadership of Jerusalem were not ready for this visitation, but you be ready for the day of the Lord when he comes in glory to judge the living and the dead. Jesus wants his people to be on their toes. He says, I want you to be on your toes and on your watch like you're, you're expecting a burglar to show up at your house at any time and you have to be alert so you can catch him. Or I want you to be on your watch like a servant who's awaiting our master's return and needs to be ready at any time to be inspected. Or I want you to be ready like one who's waiting for a friend in the night and needs to keep enough oil on hand in order to keep their candle lit so they can welcome their friend. Or I need you to be ready like one who's stewarding the wealth that belongs to somebody else, ready for your master to come at any time and you can present the return on their investment. And then we come to this passage about sheep and goats and the judgment of all things. 
And in the text, there are two great reversals that Jesus forecasts will happen. One of them is concerning himself. Verse 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. So Jesus has, has, has just picked the ultimate fight with the religious leadership of Jerusalem by cleansing the temple, by pr- pronouncing his seven woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. He's picking a fight. And Jesus knows that soon to follow will be his public uh, execution, his public torture, where he will be humiliated before the masses. And Jesus says that one of the great reversals that will happen in the age to come is people will finally get their head on straight about who he is. That there will come a moment in human history when somehow we finally see the one that all of history has been talking about. That Jesus enters into creation again, and in his renewed body, he enters creation, and every eye will see him. The prophet said, even those who pierced him, all eyes will see him, and they'll see him in his glory on his throne with the angels. And though he was maligned by the leaders and rejected by those who were his own, according to John chapter 1, and ultimately crucified, Jesus would be vindicated in front of the eyes of the whole world. And God is like saying, all that stuff I was doing with my son, that's all true. And that was all real. But the other reversal of fortune that is to come in the age to come is for those whom Jesus calls the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. And as we think about how Jesus has used language like this, and as we think about the broader context of this passage... See, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine are those who have resisted the idolatry of worldly greatness and security as characterized by the rich young ruler. It's those who have kept their feet from the path of coercive power and domination as characterized by the Romans. Those who have embraced smallness and unimportance in the eyes of the world as characterized by the children and who have remained dependent on God and humble as characterized by the blind man in Jericho, who though he was a nobody in the eyes of the world, could see what the seers of Israel could not, that Jesus was Israel's Messiah and the chosen one of God. The least of these brothers and sisters of Jesus are disciples, who having left behind worldly greatness to follow Jesus, And having taken up their crosses, find themselves at times in the world hungry and thirsty and vulnerable. And Jesus says that he so identifies himself with those who make themselves small in the present age, who follow him in the present age and therefore put themselves in positions where they will be threatened, where they will be marginalized, where they may even suffer that any who receive these, these little ones, and show mercy to them, who provide for them, will themselves receive mercy in the age to come. And the ones at whose hands they suffer, and the ones who withhold mercy from them will face an adversary on the heavenly throne. Jesus is anticipating that just as he's about to walk through, through a great difficulty, his own great tribulation and his arrest, his crucifixion, so we are going to have trouble in the world. 
If we could probably summarize two of the things that Jesus is saying to them is that one, following Jesus is probably going to make life more difficult. That is probably not a great like word of faith message to preach, but I think it's a realistic message that in ways big and small, and it varies according to our context, following Jesus is probably going to make life more difficult. Does it have its consolations? Philippians 2, 1 through 4, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love and so on, yes, there are consolations. But we are in a world that doesn't yet recognize the one that we regard as the Lord and King of all creation. And therefore, the world sees itself as being at odds with us. Following Jesus is probably going to be, make life more difficult. And two, it's going to work out fine in the age to come because Jesus has our back. And so to writing to Christians who may be suffering because of their allegiance to Jesus the Messiah, Matthew's arranged the gospel to communicate this word of Jesus as an encouragement to endure no matter what you're going through. And I want you to, I want you to put, it, put yourself in someone else's shoes of different believers throughout time and throughout the world and imagine what it would be like to hear this message that yes, life may get harder for following Jesus, but do not despair. He's got your back in the age to come. Imagine that you're a Roman Christian in the first century. And as a result of pledging allegiance to Jesus and saying Jesus is Lord, you're by default saying that Caesar is not you're no longer willing to participate in these, this, this worship and homage to the pagan gods and to Caesar as God. And as a result of it, you're kicked out of your trade guild and no longer able to conduct business. Like imagine if you're a doctor practicing medicine and because you're a Christian, you can no longer practice in this country. Or you're a lawyer, you're a teacher, and you lose your certification, you lose your license, you're no longer able to do business because you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am so identifying with you in your suffering, I want you to know I'm going to take care of you in the age to come. That when all things are shaken out, it's going to be made right for you, so endure. Or imagine that in the world today, you're a person uh, in Algeria and North Africa, and you've left a radicalized family to become a follower of Jesus, and as a result of that, they have cut you off, and your name is on a death list. If they find you, your family is going to kill you. Imagine that you're a high schooler in the city of Tulsa now, and because of your convictions, because of how you see the world, because you're a follower of Jesus, people ridicule you and people make fun of you. Or just imagine that you are a normal person in our world, trying to endure a world that is cruel as a person of mercy and kindness, or you're trying to endure a world that is in many ways perverted as a person who strives for purity. And you find yourself just not quite fitting in in the world. Jesus says, when, when these least, the least of my brothers and sisters who feel like odd ducks and misfits in the world, who never quite have their spot, who sometimes worry about being persecuted, who wonder how, if people are looking at them twice, says, life is hard for them now, but in the age to come, I'm going to make things right for them. That when the Son of Man comes in His glory and everyone realizes that the things that He said about Himself are true, that we're going to be vindicated and justified right alongside Him. Jesus is saying, in as much as you identify ourselves with Him now as a person of humility, who rejects coercive power, who embraces the cross, and who then at times finds ourselves in positions of vulnerability, whether 
physically or relationally or emotionally or vocationally, Jesus will identify himself with you both now and in the age to come. It's a word of comfort for those who are going through difficulty. It's a word of those who are being misunderstood or maligned because they're followers of Jesus. It's a word of encouragement for for just regular Christians who every day are trying to put one foot in front of the other, who against, in spite of some of the, the, the very discouraging things going on in our world that can make our heart give in to despair, who continue to do the hard work every day of continuing to believe that Christ is the Lord and King over all creation, It's a word of comfort and promise that just as Jesus will be vindicated and proved right in the age to come, that we're going to have a spot next to him. And that even those who receive us and receive the message of the gospel with mercy, with openness, they will be received right alongside us. And just as Jesus was faithful to come to those who waited so long in his incarnation, We believe that we who are continuing to wait for the fulfillment of his promises, that we will find that God proves himself to be faithful in sending Jesus again to restore and renew all things. And as we wait for our ultimate vindication, as we wait for our faith to be made sight, as we wait for this whole puzzle to come together and we finally see him who our hearts desire, he promises that he wants to come and meet with his people even today as we've gathered together in his name, under his rule, and as we come together around the table, Jesus himself wants to meet with us and allow us to feast on himself, to pour his life into us as we lay down our lives for him. Let's pray together. As we get ready to pray and to to confess our sins, to kneel, to ask for God's help, to receive communion. I want you to just to, to consider what's, what's the status of your, your heart and your mind today? As you come, as, as Jesus comes to you in the bread and wine, how is Jesus finding you today? And I don't mean that in any way that's shaming. I mean it realistic. Jesus only ever meets us as we are and where we are. Is he meeting you today uh, discouraged, tired, distracted, hopeful? And where do you want him to take you? What do you need from him today? Lord, as we come to the table today, we are realistic about who we are and what we are. There are people who, who love you, who feel drawn to you, who in varying degrees are giving our lives to following you, and we're doing our best. Lord, we need your help. For those of us who are distracted, who've been enticed and lured by just the the busyness of this world, the desire to be successful, Lord, I pray that you would put our heads and our hearts on straight. I pray that you would help our thinking and our feeling and our aspiring and our longing to be in alignment with your kingdom. Pray, Lord Jesus, for for those of us today who are just battling difficulties, whether it's a season of uncommon busyness or it's grief, loss, discouragement, divorce, um, uh, the challenges of an unhappy marriage or singleness or financial difficulties or vocational difficulties, 
We pray that you will come and meet us today and just invite and beckon our hearts to put our trust in you more completely. Lord, I pray that you pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Would you make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Lord, we thank you for your coming and your, and your incarnation. We thank you for the promise of your return. And we pray that you will come and be with your people today as we receive the bread and wine. In Christ's name we pray. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.